2: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz.
3: Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
2: Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com.
3: There's a huge focus right now on the fate of small businesses as they're hard hit by the shutdowns from the coronavirus pandemic. Someone who is very clued in to exactly how these businesses operate and how they can survive and thrive going forward is Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square, that incredibly popular payment system, electronic payment system used by many small businesses. Also the author of a new book, The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. He is a former glassblower uh, who ended up founding one of the preeminent mobile, uh, online payment systems. Jim, thank you so much for being with us today. I want to just start with just anecdotally given your conversations with small businesses, how hard hit have they been from this whole episode?
2: Oh my God, Lisa, uh, they've been tremendously hard hit. Um, and everybody knows it. It's, uh, but nobody knows the extent of it. We are watching, uh, some businesses close. We're watching, uh, employees in panics, um, it's, it's bad, and I, I'm actually still in the art world, and I still run a small studio, and my staff was terrified um, uh, because we had to shut down.
3: So why is this time different than other times when you talk about financial downturns?
2: So this is the first time there's been a voluntary shutdown of a healthy economy. So I'm also a director of the St. Louis Federal Reserve, and so I get to see the economic data almost in real time. And we had a very healthy economy going in, um, and we elected to voluntarily close down uh, the economy to solve a medical problem. Uh, This is different than most recessions. Most recessions just happen because there's some structural problem in the economy. There was none in this case. What happened was we had this medical emergency, and to fight the disease, we had to close the economy. But it's different.
3: So yes, you you do run an art studio and you are a glassblower, I believe, uh, based on your bio. Yet you did also found, co-found Square, which is one of the key technological advances for a lot of small businesses. And I'm just wondering, the role of tech at this moment when so much business is going online, how are you seeing this as a sort of transformative moment for small businesses in their relationship with their tech infrastructure?
2: Well, they're super dependent on the tech infrastructure. As a matter of fact, Square has been rolling out new products uh, almost every day to help small businesses adapt. And we're, we're putting new products in their hands, uh, you know, probably one a week now, uh, allowing restaurants to turn to uh, delivery and pickup, uh, uh, making our software free for uh, companies that need it. And basically, look, um, this in some ways helps companies that have modernized their processes to use uh, electronic payments, to use electronic record keeping, to use electronic meetings, to use distributed workforces. And it's forcing a lot of other companies uh, to get with the program.
3: Going forward, I'm just wondering, do you expect a lot of these smaller businesses to go out of business completely? Or do you think that there will just be a sort of transformation as far as weeding out the most successful, successful ones?
2: Well, I mean, there's certainly going to be a winnowing down of uh, companies that were not well-prepared for this. But the the real tragedy is that there were a lot of healthy businesses that are getting caught in it. Uh, the government's trying to step in. Uh, one of my great concerns is that the government is uh, doing a lot of their aid through uh, sort of antiquated paper-based systems, and it's not going to get the money to the people that need it and the businesses that need it fast enough. So uh, at Square, we're working diligently to try to give them the tools uh, for instantaneous or near real-time Um, action, if the government chooses to do that.
3: Wait, so in other words, you're working with the government right now to try to make these payments electronic?
2: Yes. So uh, Jack said a tweet about this a couple weeks ago, but basically our whole company stands ready to give whatever aid we can because we've had the electronic rails uh, working for several years and they work with millions of businesses and scaling from millions to tens of millions or hundreds of millions is uh, not as difficult as scaling from nothing uh, to you know, project number one.
3: Jim McKelvey, thank you so much for being with us and for sharing your insights. Jim McKelvey is co-founder of Square, based in St. Louis, author of The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time, a new book that's out. He also is a glassblower, which I really love uh, as somebody who used to do sculpture a long time ago. One of the key questions for markets going forward is whether inflation will actually start to pick up this time, typically in the past. The idea has been, theoretically, when governments print money that leads to inflation, it didn't happen in 2009. People are expecting it not to happen again. But are they wrong? Maura Murphy joining us now, Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Loomis Sales, which oversees nearly $300 billion and is based in Boston. Maura, uh, Maura, this to me is one of the most important debates at a time when people are basically shrugging off the concept of inflation going forward, even as governments and central banks unleash some of the biggest financial packages ever to hit markets. Do you think this time is different than the 2008-2009 financial crisis and that this actually will spur uh, inflation?
4: Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, it's certainly different this time in that the, the pace and the size that the Fed is issuing and buying right now is drastically different than any of the other QEs we've ever seen. They're really doing this at what I would call a sprint pace. And we need to get ourselves into this marathon mindset rather than the sprint we've been in. Because they need, as you see this week, they're already starting to taper the pace of their purchases. And we'll see how the market responds to that. So far, as you mentioned, the break-evens are off their lows, um, which suggests that the market is no longer pricing that real fear of deflation or disinflationary risk. But we're still well off the levels of being uh, afraid of inflation to come. I think the thing to watch that'll be key to see if we do get inflation this time with all of the easing is what happens with the dollar. We need to watch for that excess dollar liquidity in the market. And given the amount that we've seen with increased swap lines from the Fed, a weaker dollar would finally perhaps give us that impetus for inflation pressure. But I, I think that's a lot further down the line. And right now we need to be focused on the pace of the Fed buy-in.
3: All right. So I guess inflation is sort of a hard concept to, 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 to get your mind around because there are a lot of different components to it. And there are a lot of potential scenarios in terms of whether the financial package from the Fed continues to accelerate or if it does slow down. As you talked about, there is a much more concrete issue of bond yields. And we're looking right now at 10-year yields at, at, at three quarters of a percent. And you're seeing people expect that rate to actually go down over time, even as the U.S. prints unprecedented amount uh, amounts of these securities. At what point will that increase in supply lead to higher yields?
4: That, that's the ultimate question here, right, is timing on all of this. And I think, unfortunately, we still have too many unknowns to really have a good sense of when that actually might occur. The Fed is talking about issuing T-bills right now for um, supply to pay for this stimulus. But eventually, they may need to issue on the back end of the curve, which I don't think we have a lot of natural demand there right now with levels as low as you mentioned, um, because people are starting to step into some of the new IG issuance um, rather than stay in the safe-haven treasury assets. But volatility remains really high in this asset class. The Fed has improved liquidity, But vol is still there. And so I think, you know, given that we're likely to see bigger moves intraday and the range of yields that we're going to be in will likely be wider than we've been used to. So when we used to trade in a range of 20 to 30 basis points on 10 or 30 year yields, now I think that range could be a lot wider while we try to figure out where the right level is based on the supply that's coming and based on the buying that's happening.
3: The volatility has pretty significant consequences, not only for the Treasury market, but also for credit. And I'm wondering what this does for investment-grade bonds, even as they're backstopped by the Federal Reserve, given the fact that they're more sensitive than ever to the fluctuations in the volatility and Treasury yields.
4: Yeah, one of the patterns we've seen over the last week is that all of this new IG issuance that's come to market, um, you have deals that are highly oversubscribed. Um, I'd liken it to all of us right now rushing to get that online order. We all wake up early and we're trying to, you know, secure that
3: online delivery for our groceries every day. And Are you are you actually like succeeding, by the way? Are you, you are know, you it's
1: so hard, isn't it? it I,
3: I have I've failed every single day. I actually have to go out, get get geared up in my hazmat suit and go to the grocery store. But carry on, please.
4: Yeah. So, you know, if we think of it like that, we have this rush for everyone going to the same space right now, because that's where the Fed is supporting. So, you know, that old adage of don't fight the Fed persists here. So you want to be in IG. And that um, demand for these high quality, large deals is really persisting. And I think that will continue. um, And we've only probably just seen the start of that. And I, I think to strengthen the secondary will be the next order of operations after all of this new issuance.
3: So it sounds like you're overweight investment grade. Is that right?
4: Yeah, we're, we're constructive on the new issuance here, and we like the level of yields after the backup. And I think given the natural buyer in the Fed, it's a place we definitely uh, like and we'll be adding to.
3: What about high yield? Uh,
4: it's a little bit harder to source high yield paper right now. Um, really? And, uh, we're, we're having... We're seeing that um, IG with the excess supply is a little bit easier for us to be buying right now. Um, in high yield, I'm just not sure we have a good sense yet, um, given the unknowns with the recovery, of, you know, how, how long will this last? Wait. How fast can companies really resume normal operations? And how big and how, you know, what's the magnitude of this recession? And not knowing those unknowns, it's hard to really assess recovery values and high yield companies and so uh, I guess we're just not ready to say that the, uh, the bounce is real here yet so we're not out into the riskier
3: sectors at the moment. More, th- that's really compelling to me. You said it's difficult to source paper. In other words has the dramatic move that we've seen uh, been largely on paper and nobody really wants to solidify their losses by actually selling the underlying bonds? Is that, is that what you're saying?
4: Liquidity is definitely improving across the board, across most markets, but I, I think it's it's perhaps not necessarily people stepping in to buy yet in large size. Um, this, this sell-off has happened very quickly. I think, you know, less than a month or just about a month is how long it took for us to hit the bottoms here if we did hit the bottom. And that's, you know, the fastest pace we've seen in a long time. Um, back in 87, it took about 75 days for the peak to trough to occur. And this time it took less than 30. So given that it just happened so quickly, I'd be shocked if there isn't more downside to come. And I think in light of that, it's, it's unwise to, to be stepping into risk here.
3: Maura Murphy, thank you so much for being with us. Maura Murphy, Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Loomis Sales with uh, almost $300 billion under management based in Boston. I'm Lisa Abramo. It's my co-host and colleague, Paul Sweeney, off today uh, from New York. This is Bloomberg Markets. There's a key question in the transformation of the U.S. economy right now that's going on in the heels of the coronavirus, and that is, what is the state of the consumer? Will they be able to maintain the recovery that we saw that will have to happen yet again and may not happen yet again for another couple of years. Joining us now is David Kudla, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Strategist at Mainstay Capital Management. David, this has been a sort of key talking point for years, that the American consumer is very strong. Right now, we are seeing an absolute demolition in confidence among American consumers. How pivotal are they in the recovery from this period of time that we're looking at?
5: It'll be very pivotal. Uh, hi, Lisa. The you know the consumer is two thirds of the U.S. economy, and uh, how the consumer uh, comes out of this in terms of their uh, purchasing habits, the consumer sentiment, consumer confidence, how soon consumers are willing to re-engage the economy, uh, how unemployment affects their behavior coming out of this, how. Uh, pay cuts, because some of the, you know, there are different impacts on different uh, parts of or different demographics across the U.S. Uh, we have some that are going to be un- unemployed for a certain period of time, and the, the fiscal stimulus package is addressing some of that uh, in a meaningful way. Uh, there are others that are going to just have uh, haircuts in their pay. Uh, a lot in the automotive industry here in Michigan uh, have 20% pay deferrals, Um that, uh, or pay cuts, just straight pay cuts that will go on for months. And so that's going to be affecting you know, consumer discretionary uh, activity. So uh, it's yet to be seen. You know, so much of this is unknown, but it will be key in how the consumer behaves coming you know, out of or on the other side of uh, the coronavirus restart of the economy.
3: Yeah, I was looking uh, at a story out of the Financial Times, a survey that they conducted this, uh, and it came out today, that nearly three-quarters of Americans say the coronavirus pandemic has reduced their families' income nearly a quarter so their household income had been cut very significantly, according to this poll. And you're very much at the epicenter of that when you look at the auto industry in Detroit, and how much it's just come to a complete halt. How much long-term damage will that do? I mean, that's sort of a, a key question I'm wondering. How quickly can people revive, not just uh, from a balance sheet perspective, but from a confidence perspective? Is there any kind of historical precedent?
5: I don't know that there is. You know, this is the first recession that's been brought on by uh, a pandemic that's been brought on by any kind of disease or virus. So it's unknown in that regard. Um, You know, we have some predictability in that, you know, we came into this with a a, a, really an economy on pretty good footing in terms of being at 50 year unemployment. Uh, We had rising wages. We had a, a strong, relatively strong consumer coming into this, and then the economy didn't shut down or slow down under normal business conditions or a normal business cycle. It was an artificial restraint. We, the government, actually shut down the economy, and we're, then we're going to fire it back up. But there's some natural things or natural uh, or human factors that have to happen to, for that to reoccur. So there are a lot of unknowns in that.
3: As an investor, how do you trade around this?
5: Well, I think for now, I think that, you know, these last two days, there is a lot of optimism about, you know, what we saw over the weekend in New York City, the improvement of the last several days in Europe, specifically in in France, in Spain, in Italy. Um, and so there's confidence about uh, the number of new cases slowing. But uh, you know, we know that there, we have a long way to go here, and the economic impacts are still to be realized. So. Uh, I think that investors need to be careful about uh thinking that this is this is behind us and and we think that it's still important to have you know some defensive posturing in place some hedges in place in your portfolio uh because there's there's still volatility ahead we've still got some some pretty bad economic numbers to come out and uh first quarter earnings and even second quarter earnings that are going to be pretty abysmal.
3: So do you think that you'd be uh, selling this rally and that you expect uh, the U.S. equity markets to test new lows?
5: I don't know if we'll test new lows, but I think we've certainly got a downdraft, uh, more of a downdraft from from uh, some point here. Uh, I don't know how much further this rally can go. We're seeing it fade a little bit as we get into trading today. You know, very strong rally yesterday. Futures were strong again this morning, started to fade a little bit. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, come and go today through trading this morning. But, um, you know, we, we see, you know, we're in a, what we're calling right now an event driven bear market, not a, not a, a secular bear market, not a, you know, we don't think that this is a, uh, morphed into an o eight o nine top type of bear market, that this is still just an event driven bear market that will just last, uh, a few short months and not, uh, a couple of years or, 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 uh, uh, a year or longer. We think that uh, we're coming out of this, and by the end of the year, uh, the economy and stock market will be on pretty good footing again. Um, that's yet to be seen, but that's that's our well, forecast right now.
3: The economy and, and the stock market are two very different things, and there's a feeling that the stock market might recover, but the economy, the economic hit, very few people at this point are, are putting conviction behind a V-shaped recovery in the economy. What gives you confidence that this will just be a couple of months and then all those jobs will come back
5: it, I guess it's it's it really comes down to and we don't know right it it comes down to how long the social distancing needs to go on um, how the data keeps coming in relative to the number of new cases and then what we talked about earlier on how uh, the consumers re-engage the economy how uh, people get back to work um, the the uh, uh, you know continuation of or the continuation of unemployment for a period of time, the longer it goes, the more businesses that go out of business, the more people that are suffering that much longer makes it that much harder to restart the economy and, and starts to manifest into longer-term effects. That's the that's the risk. So the sooner we restart the economy, and I'm not suggesting we do that, it's got to be health and safety first, but the sooner we restart the economy, the less the effects will be. If you look at China as a model, um, and as much as we believe the data and the recovery, but there's, you know, there's measurements that we're taking uh, that are being taken to, to see that what the real recovery rate is there and how much factories are actually running and so forth. But they really did have somewhat of a V-shaped recovery in a matter of a few months from the time they went down to come back up. They're not running at full production now. Uh, it's, right. it's questionable as to what markets they can ship to. But, you know, there's a model where it all happened literally in a few months.
3: Yeah. David Kudla, thank you so much for being with us. David Kudla, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Strategist at Mainstay Capital Management with nearly $3 billion joining us from Michigan. There's a question right now about the progress of the coronavirus and some of the measures put in place to limit its spread in Europe. They appear to be working. However, we did see an increase in the number of deaths in Spain. And there is a question right now around the leadership of the United Kingdom as Boris Johnson, the prime minister, is still in the hospital in an intensive care unit uh, being treated for the coronavirus for some insight on what we should take away from this episode. Let's bring in Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion Editor, covering European politics and economics. Therese, of course, our thoughts are with Boris Johnson, hoping that he does recover from the virus. On a bigger level, though, is there anything that we can take away in terms of the leadership of the United Kingdom throughout this epidemic, as well as beyond, and what the future brings in terms of Boris Johnson's government?
1: Well, the UK does not, like the US, have a vice uh, president or vice prime minister role. There's no uh, constitutionally designated number two. At present, Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab, a, a cabinet member and one-time rival to Boris Johnson, has been designated as his stand-in for day-to-day uh, policy meetings. And the cabinet is uh, says it's taking decisions by consensus. Now, that can continue for a while. Should Johnson become... Uh, seriously incapacitated? Should he resign? Uh, Then it's a different process. The cabinet would then choose uh, a member to recommend to the Queen to become prime minister. There's no acting prime ministerial role in the UK constitution. They would simply become prime minister. But I think that's sort of getting ahead of ourselves, Johnson, the news out this afternoon, is in good spirits and stable. He's not on a ventilator, as you said in your introduction. So the hope is that he will be able to return to full work. Um, whether that will happen in a few days or, or much further into the future isn't clear.
3: I, I, Therese, forgive me for being, I don't want to say cynical, but cynical. We got uh, a <laughs> communication out of the United Kingdom that Boris Johnson was totally fine. They were mild symptoms. Then we got information that he was just brought to the hospital for a precautionary check. It was just a precautionary measure. Stop getting your nose all out of joint about it. It's no big deal. Then we hear he's in the ICU, but he's not in a ventilator. He's fine. Everything's copacetic. Is there a trust issue here, or, or you know, is this just sort of a protocol for a leader of a nation?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I wish I could answer that with any great certainty. There are moments when it has felt a little bit, um, you know, like, uh, you you know, like watching the old Soviet leaders and wondering what's happening. I think what we have to bear in mind is that this virus um, operates in in sort of strange and mysterious ways. There are cases where uh, uh, a COVID-19 sufferer will be experiencing fairly moderate symptoms that persist, and within hours, it gets much worse. So, it may be that, uh, the, that Downing Street was putting a positive spin on things, and it may also be that the uh, prime minister, who we know, uh, you know, we know from his biographer, that he doesn't believe in illness, he tends to work through illnesses, he doesn't really tolerate it in his staff, that he may have just been pushing himself, not being quite um, you know, as, as, uh, as careful about to, you know, looking after himself and resting, and things might have deteriorated quite quickly. I think we're not going to know that for a while. the Downing Street is going out of its way right now to say that they are being transparent, they're updating the media regularly, um, but uh, that's a you know legitimate question and many here are asking it.
3: Just shifting gears to the continent of Europe, there is some talk about reopening parts of certain economies as the virus does appear to be plateauing when it comes to the count of deaths and new cases in certain hotspots. I'm wondering what the latest is on that. Well,
1: The epidemiological curve is at a different place, or let's put it this way: different countries are on a different place of uh, on that curve. And those that have uh, taken earlier measures, or whose um, death rates and infection rates are slowing, are now starting to contemplate um, loosening those measures. But it's a very, uh, it's a very finely balanced decision because there is no vaccine as we know. There won't be a vaccine most likely for a while and there's always a risk that in loosening uh, controls you see another surge of infections and that it then becomes harder as uh, the a team that advises Boris Johnson keeps saying it becomes harder to re- uh, reimpose those controls after people sort of you know get a taste of, of having some freedom. So I think we're likely to see this progressing by fits and starts. Perhaps some uh, schools will reopen or certain, um, you know, still fairly essential businesses will be allowed to operate, but not, but people will still be encouraged to work from home and that sort of thing. There's also discussion of issuing immunity passports. So those who have tested uh, positive in the past have had COVID-19 or who antibody tests show um, have had it even if they didn't experience symptoms, would be given some kind of certification so that they could use public transport, return to work, and communicate to, you know, to anyone that they, are not, um, that they are not infectious. But that depends on uh, getting the disease being a sort of one and done rather than something that can, uh, you can be reinfected with in a short period
3: afterwards. Therese Raphael, uh, we are all living in a science fiction novel. Uh, Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion Editor covering European politics and economics. It does feel like it is a scene out of uh, some sort of surreal science fiction when everybody is being tested for their immunological defense mechanisms to this virus going forward.